All right. Good morning again. Um, as I said earlier this morning, as part of our anniversary, we have um, our very good friend Tim Chaddick here with us this morning. Um, Tim uh, is a friend of mine, and he's been a friend of mine for years. When I was in L.A., um, at seminary, I got to meet him and our love for London and our love for football, soccer, yes, um, has definitely been something we've enjoyed together. He's been an incredible source of wisdom um, for not just me and my family personally, but for our church. You know, I was saying earlier that, you know, we, we've reached five years, and the leadership of this church has definitely been strengthened and encouraged by Tim and several others, and Tim has just been a great friend, and you know, when we were thinking about a speaker for our fifth year anniversary, he was top of the list, and glad he was available, and so I'm not going to say lots, but anyway, so as I said earlier, we love soccer, and Tim supports the team that is rival to my team. <laughs> and it's very controversial, um, but the interesting thing is I still love him and appreciate him, and that is the power of Christ. Yes, <laughs> unity in Christ is important, um, but when our teams play each other, um, it gets interesting. Very interesting. It's fun, exactly, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, without further ado, Tim Chagrick, everyone. Thank you. Oh, Obed, thank you. King's Cross, so good to be with you. Um, as Obed mentioned, uh, he was working at the church I was pastoring when I was in L.A., and then my family and I ended up moving to London after 10 years uh, and planted there. And then two years ago, we moved uh, to Ventura. So I'm now at Reality Ventura, and... Um, we have such a love for King's Cross Church because we frequently have Obed come and visit and through the connection with him, many of our, in our congregation have come to know you and support you and pray for you. So King's Cross Church here feels a little more like family year after year. And so we just want you to know that um, all the way up in Ventura, you have church family praying for you, rooting for you, and cheering you on. And we just want to say that, that we love you. So it's a joy to be here. And I, I just have a simple word to share with you from the book of Philippians on your fifth year anniversary. If you have a Bible, please turn to Philippians chapter 4. The verses will also be on the screen. Philippians chapter 4 from the ESV. Let's stand together as we read the word of God and I'll lead us in a prayer and we will invite him to speak to us on this very special day as a church. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. Paul the apostle says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. 
together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, would you open our hearts? We ask this morning that you would speak to us both individually and corporately on this matter of unity, which is so near and dear to your heart. For you sent your son to first bring us to yourself and then to bring us together. I pray for King's Cross Church that it would be a unified church in Jesus Christ and that all of San Diego would see it. So speak to us now that we might be and live as a unified church under the headship of Jesus Christ. For the glory of your name, we pray this together. Amen. You can be seated. There's the story of a very stern man sitting on a train between two women who were arguing about the window. One woman argued, if the window stays closed, I will die of heat stroke. The other responded, well, if the window remains open, I will die of pneumonia. And the arguing went on and on, and so they called the conductor who simply could not resolve this matter of conflict. Finally, the man in the middle spoke up. He says, I've got it. First, open the window. That will kill the first one. Then close it, and that will kill the other. And then we will have peace. It's a cynical story, but I share it for this reason. Many people talk about peace and unity but we do not all share the same understanding of it or how to actually achieve it. This question of unity is not only important for the broader culture, it is particularly important for you, King's Cross Church. After all, what is the best predictor of a long-lasting community? If you read, particularly of churches, if you read about like what are some of the signs that predict that you will stick around, that you will be resilient, that you will continue on together, what is one of the best predictors of a resilient community? Is it that you all share the same background? Is it that you all have the the same education? Is that the best predictor of how we can all get along? Well, surprisingly, according to these wise writers, one of the best predictors of a strong and steadfast church community is how well you handle conflict. You're like, that's not fun. This is our five-year anniversary. Why do we have to talk about conflict? Or let me put it this way. One of the great signs of your maturity as a church is your ability to practice unity. That's according to the New Testament. So, King's Cross, you are today five years old. And the question is, how well do you practice unity? 
See, for many of us, we question our friendships. We question our communities. Newly married couples, anyone in the room? Newly married? You question your marriage at the first sign of an argument. I love doing pre-marriage counseling, and one of my favorite sessions is the session on conflict. Because the couples come into it, and they're like, oh, we don't need this one, because we don't argue. And they're like, and I'm like, you are adorable. And then an argument comes, and they're like, did I marry the one? I don't know. Is, are they wrong? Is this wrong? What has happened? And the same is true of the church. Some of you have joined King's Cross even in the last year, and you're like, I love the community. And three months into it, somebody argues with you, and you're like, I'm out. I'm going to write a Google review this weekend. I cannot believe this church. Someone argued with me. How dare they? We all know that problems and conflict and arguments can actually break a relationship. We know that. But what if these troubles could make the community? What all depends on how we handle it. So in this passage before us, a book that you've studied before, the book of Philippians, we are made aware of some conflict happening within this church, and the author Paul is telling us how to deal with it. And it's important that we pay attention because there's two common approaches that many of us have when it comes to conflict. We either avoid it or we amplify it. Some of you, you run away. It's the flight. Others of you, it's the fight. We either avoid or we amplify neither work. And so while many people are looking for methods of unity, there are a lot of practical helps. But I want to say this, Christianity does not only provide a how for unity, Christianity provides the ultimate why for unity. And so I want for us this morning to see both how to practice unity as a church, but also why. This is Paul's heart. And this is so important for you at this key stage in the life of your church because one of the most common accusations against the church is hypocrisy and discord and disunity. So your unity is a witness to this community. So having said that, these brief but important words extend this, the central themes of this letter on joy that we would live out together what we believe together. So normally, I am a three-point sermon person. Normally, Obed is a three-point sermon person. But today, I have five points. One for each year of your church. And the first is this. Here's what you need to know. Five things you need to know, King's Cross, if you're going to practice unity. Number one, there will be drama. If you're new to the church, maybe this is your first time. We love you. Welcome. You need to know there's going to be drama. Who was causing the division in this Philippian church? Well, two leaders, and they were known publicly. He says in verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, are these these people that he's addressing, Christians? Yes, Paul makes this very clear. Now, as we read that, it may strike us as rude that Paul, in his letter that is to be read to the church, addresses these women publicly. 
I mean, can you imagine if I showed up today and Obed slipped me two names that he wanted me to address today and I name you (laughs) publicly? You'd think, why would he do that? Well, there's actually two reasons why he does. Number one, they were well known and so was their drama. (laughs) They were leading in some way, shape, or form within the church. They might have overseen a team or, or whatever. But the second reason is he's acknowledging their influence. Whatever teams they led, whatever part of the community they were involved in, they were known, and so the impact of their disagreement was felt. Now, what was causing the trouble? Well, the short answer is we don't know. But it was most likely not a doctrinal issue. Paul always addresses those in his letters. Neither was it an ethical or moral issue. Paul has no problem addressing these matters publicly. It was most likely a relational situation. It was most likely relational. We don't know. We speculate, right? Maybe Syntyche wanted to play clarinet on the worship team and Eodia said no. And so she decided to send a mass email to the whole church, all caps in the subject line. Like, there is no unity on the worship team. How dare she tell me I can't play? Or maybe Eodia strongly degreed with Syntyche when their church moved over to church center to do all their volunteer organizations. I don't like this. I, what, what, I don't like that the church is changing. Who knows what it was? Now, I, I joke, but why does this matter? It may not have been a major issue, but the effect was. It may not have been a doctrinal or moral or ethical matter, but the impact on the community was a big deal, so much so that Paul addresses it publicly. I think when we look on the last few years in particular within the church, we see all these ideological battles and philosophical battles playing out week after week. In fact, I read a sad statistic. I can't remember the exact numbers, but many people are becoming more and more likely to choose a church based on ideology more than theology. And that is concerning. Meaning, oh, well, what's your particular stance on this like third tier issue rather than do you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and faithfully handle scripture and practice the sacraments and evangelize and all that? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I have this particular view on this, this very like niche political matter. And if you are not aligned with my view on that, I'm not gonna be a part of the church. Something's happened where people will choose a church based on ideology over theology. And as a result, it creates all this division. Your approach to a particular matter creates all this division. Or it could have been more relational, like we often experience in the church. Miscommunication, hurt feelings. You weren't included on that email. You weren't invited to this particular group. Who knows what it might have been, but we deal with it on a daily basis. And Paul's passion is for unity. But there was not unity among these two leaders. And when servants in the church are not unified, it's hard for the church to be unified. 
And so when there's a conflict amongst leaders, as it's been said, people don't vote on facts, they vote for their friends. I don't know if you've heard that, but we all, we all kind of choose sides. Here's the thing about unity. It's gained very slowly, but it's lost quickly. Or if you want a very profound theological thought from my musings this morning, unity is like an avocado. <laughs> Just go with me on this. You know avocados, you buy them and you have to wait forever. It's like, not ready. Not ready. It's just hard. You can't cut it. You wait forever. And then all of a sudden, it's ready. But if you don't cut it right then, it's, done. it's gone. The window's gone. You can't eat it anymore. Unity, you're like building, building, building. You're like, it's there. Oh, it's gone. It's really, it takes a long time to gain unity. Some of you are like, wow, unity's an avocado. What does this church teach? You get my point. It's gained slowly, but it can be lost quickly. You need to know that there will be drama. And it must be addressed. But how? Second point. Second thing you need to know about practicing unity is that love must set the tone. Notice that Paul both begins and ends with an incredible expression of love for the whole community, including those he has to correct. He says in verse 1, which I skipped, Therefore, my brothers... Notice his language, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now knock it off. My translation, of course. If you're parents in the room, this is a great model of like, you know, discipline. Just start out with like, I love you. You're my joy and my crown. Now please stop hitting your sister. He expresses his love and his concern for them. So to set the stage in order to deal with the drama in the church, it begins with love. So friends, I want you to notice that before he challenges, before he deals directly with the drama in the church, he leaves no doubt regarding his love for these people. They are the children of God, brothers and sisters. And this was to a church would not normally be associated with one another because they all come from very different backgrounds and yet God has brought them together and gives them a bond that is deeper than any kind of cultural background. And on that basis, he says, I am filled with love for you. In fact, one scholar paraphrases this verse as if Paul is saying, I love you, I really love you. That's the idea that he's communicating here. And therefore, he feels the pain of separation when there's disunity, whatever the cause was. I love you and I care about you. Here's something I've had to learn over the years. Don't correct someone you don't have love for. If you try to correct someone you don't have love for, it's not going to go well. See, some of us, we like to correct because you like to be right. You don't need to raise your, your hand in the room. Like it feels really good. You're like, oh, they're wrong. I can't wait to correct them. Don't correct someone that you don't have love for. Paul models this for us. There will be drama, but love must set the tone. So very down-to-earth practical advice. Don't let division surprise you and don't let division control you. 
It's going to happen. Don't think that in King's Cross Church that it's not going to happen. There will be drama. People will get into fights. There will be disagreement. There will be issues that are very, very hard to resolve. They may even become known in the church. That is normal. The New Testament assumes an imperfect church where drama will happen. So don't let it surprise you. I say that because I fear that some of us, we come with very idealistic views of the church thinking that, oh, I found this new church, it's great, or it's been a couple years, and all of a sudden there's like some, some disunity and some difficulty, and you're like, oh, I don't know about King's Cross. I don't know, because someone was fighting in that church. Like, oh, really? Well, that makes it a biblical church. <laughs> that it happens. Don't let it surprise you. But secondly, don't let it control you. Don't let it derail you. Don't be caught off guard by it, and don't be controlled by it. There will be drama. Love must set the tone, even when it's hard. Now, for some of us, this is particularly difficult because maybe you've had a past experience, whether in the church or outside of the church, where you've been burned. You've been wounded. You've been hurt. But don't let past failures of others determine your faithfulness to Jesus. If anyone could have spoken to that issue with wisdom and experience, it was Paul the Apostle. If you know anything about Paul, he had been abandoned, he'd been betrayed. Like, if you want to talk about being wounded in the church, talk to Paul the Apostle. But notice his response. In fact, let me give you a quote from one of his other letters, 2 Corinthians, to a church who didn't thank him for all that they did and oftentimes, you know, created more pain than joy in his life. Look at what he says to that church. I am gladly willing to spend and be spent for your souls, though the more I love you, the less I am loved. Take a photo of that verse. (laughs) That's crazy. He's like, hey, I will give my life, even though the more I love you, you guys love me less. But he's like, I'm not in it for how much affirmation I get. I'm in it because I genuinely love you sacrificially. We've got to let love set the tone. And so Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. And that leads to the third point. The third thing you need to know about practicing unity, King's Cross, is we all take the first step. There will be drama. Don't be surprised by it. Love must set the tone. And when it comes to actually dealing with it, we all take the first step. I love that in this verse to these these two women, he addresses them both. Notice it says, I entreat, I entreat. I entreat both of them equally to agree in the Lord, verse 2. It's very important for us to note that Paul does not take sides, nor is he primarily concerned as to the percentage of fault. This is a big factor, especially in your close friendships, family, marriage. I don't know how many of you have ever gotten involved in an auto accident and then you're dealing with the insurance company, and you know how they get into percentage of fault? They're like, well, you were at, you know, 72% fault, and, you know, the other person was at 28% fault. That's often how we view it in the church. Well, I think in this matter, Pastor, I was only 
7.2% at fault, but them, oh, it's a clear 93. I can't do the math on flying my head. Whatever it is, a lot. They are a lot at fault. I am only sort of at fault. See, Paul doesn't get into that. His concern is unity. You guys have to agree together. Which one of them? Both of them. So here's why that's important. We often say, if we feel wronged in the church or someone's causing trouble, we often think, well, who's obligated to take the first step? Well, they're the ones that are the problem. So I'm going to wait for them to uh, apologize. Who takes the first step? The answer, both. Everyone is obligated to take the first step. Now, we don't like to take the first step step or make the first move, but this is precisely what we must do if we're going to practice unity. Whether you're the offended party or the offending party, or there's a disagreement as to who is what, as there often is, the moment you're aware of disunity is the moment that you need to take responsibility, regardless of how much fault you are at or not. We all take the first step. Now, I know that makes us nervous, and it can be a little messy, so here's just a few practical guidelines. First, you need to be humble in your attitude when it comes to taking the first step. Practically, this means don't watch revenge films or listen to, like, revenge songs, you know, before you're going to go meet with someone in the church. Don't do it. It's not healthy. Don't go into it with the attitude of, like, I'm going to make you suffer just a I'm going to make you pay just a little. Don't do it. Don't let your ego get in the way. Also, be prayerful about the person that you're in conflict with. Maybe there's some drama right now. King's Cross Church, maybe it's in your community group or a team that you, you serve on. Be humble in your attitude, but also be prayerful. Pray a lot about the situation. Pray a lot for that particular person that you feel the need to address. John Newton, who is known, of course, for writing Amazing Grace, wrote a less known work that I find very helpful. It's called On Controversy. It's a great letter. Just Google it, read it. That's your homework for your fifth year anniversary. On Controversy. Let me just give you, I'm going to quote him again later. You get a little double Newton this morning. Listen to what he says. As to your opponent... I wish that before you set pen to paper against him and during the whole time you are preparing your answer that you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him and such a disposition will have a good influence on every page you write email that you send, or text that you write. Isn't that beautiful? Like, stop and pray. And notice his point there is not only that you're praying for the other person, but for your own heart. How often do we approach conflict in that way? Lord, help me to love them. Help me to handle this situation in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Help me to have compassion upon them as I seek to address them. Be humble, be prayerful, and be willing to admit any contribution you have made to the conflict. Now that is not easy, as my wife, if she were here, would attest to. It is so 
heart, if you're convinced in your mind that they're like 80 whatever percent at fault and you have a mind, it's so hard to admit any contribution that you have made to the conflict, but own it. Maybe there was an email that was sent out to a a group, you know, in, in the church and maybe somebody reacted in a very intense way. And in your mind, well, that person, man, they're just total drama. Like, I cannot believe their, their response was just over the top. But have a look back at that email. Maybe it didn't have the tone that it should have. Maybe some of the details were, were overlooked. Or maybe you did leave someone out. Like, just own it. Like, hey, I think I could have written this better. But I do want to talk about this matter. If you've made any contribution to the conflict, own it. This is not to say that we all have equal blame, but even so, it's an important question for us to ask. Take on the hard work of examining yourself and be committed to the process of healing. It takes time. And so many issues in churches go unresolved because people are not willing to take the time or make the effort. As I'm like getting older and now I'm in like the third church I'm pastoring, I've reflected a lot on this, you know, like in the early years, it's all exciting, but you guys are five now. You're going to get to the point as a church where you stop counting your birthdays, right? I don't even, I think I turned 44 this year. I don't know. This year it was like birthday. I was like, how old am I? Like, I don't even remember. Anyone with me? Like, right? You just, you forget. I'm like, I don't know. Middle-aged man. Like that, that, that's how old I am, you know? But when you're kids, you're like, oh, you're five, you're six. You just stop counting at a certain point, right? But sadly, you lose some of that zeal that you once had in the early days to be sure that you're quick to commit to resolve any conflict or, or to engage in pursuing peace. King's Cross Church, don't lose that zeal to pursue unity. Don't lose that zeal every one of us, we must take the first step. But even when we do, sometimes things are are hard and they might actually get worse. And this is where people often give up. And so what do we do? We ask for help. It's the fourth thing I want to say. Fourth thing you need to know about practicing unity is that it is a community project. Unity is a community project. Fresh in Paul's mind, no doubt, was a letter he had written to another church around the same time that he wrote his letter to the Philippian church. It was an argument and a dispute that led to an embarrassing lawsuit before the courts. It's found in his letter to the Corinthian church. And when he's writing to that church and dealing with that matter, he actually says something. There's a little line in that church. I don't have it on the screen. But he says, is there no one in the church who can be wise and help you? He's saying, why did it have to go all the way to court? You're like suing one another in the church. Why did it? Was there no one in the church that could have helped you? Was there no one at all who was wise and who could have stepped in and helped you? That's what he's begging for here. Now, there's no indication that the situation here in Philippi was as severe, but nonetheless, unity is such a value that Paul writes in verse 3, yes, I also ask you, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement 
and the rest of my fellow workers. He says, hey, this situation is to the point where I'm going to ask a local companion to help. Now, we don't know the identity of this person. Perhaps it was another leader in the church. They are unknown to us, but they were certainly known to them. Much more than the identity of this person is their role. Sometimes, in the life of the church, we do need a third party to come in and provide perspective and help. But it should be a person of maturity. Such a person needs to come in like a mediator to help them overcome their differences. And when this happens, it needs to happen with even-handedness, fairness. So when you invite someone else into the situation, or you feel the need to, or you're asked or requested to get involved, you must be open to both sides. I know a lot about being a mediator because I am a parent of multiple children right? It's, it's like part of the job. You are like a mediator. You have, to, you have to get involved in this situation when it begins to impact the rest of the family. And one of the things that you have to do is listen to both sides of the story. So many people in our country do not listen to the other side of the story. They just shut it down. They, they favor their friends and they don't listen to arguments, but it even happens within the church. And so we would do well to listen to the book of Proverbs Chapter 18, verse 17, I love this. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Truer things could never be spoken in my house. My one daughter comes like, she hit me. I'm like, why did you hit her? Well, she hit me first. Okay, okay. There's another side to the story. How often in pastoral ministry have I received the email, I am writing to inform you of a member in the congregation who has stirred up great controversy. And then I look at the other side of it and like, oh, well, didn't you know that that person started this whole drama like three weeks before they sent the email? I'm like, ah, now I'm getting the full picture. We need accountability. It is interesting, isn't it, that we often assume bad intentions in others, but rarely in ourselves. And that's why it's good at times to bring in a, a third party. You know, if, if, you're, uh, if, if your roommate or if your spouse didn't do the the dishes, it's because they're totally res- irresponsible. But when you didn't do them, it's because you were overworked. Right? That, that's how it is. There's always a story like, oh, I can't, really? I can't believe you can't even clean up after yourself. But when you forget to do it, it's like, I have a, don't you know about my life? I have a hard life. Don't give me a hard time about the dishes. It's so funny. And so Paul says, help these women. Join them together is what it literally means. It's a beautiful picture of unity. And notice how many times the word with appears there. With, with, alongside. There are times we need to bring others in. And what I love about this, friends, is that this shows that drama in the church, conflict, disunity, 
is not necessarily the, the, the job of like the senior leaders of the church. So it's not like anytime there's a problem, directly email, you know, in this case, Obed, not to embarrass him, like email him first. There's a great responsibility laid on every Christian to take it upon themselves to practice unity. Now, the senior leaders of the church can help guide and direct and make sure it's done the right way, but you've got to do it. You can't just outsource it. There's a great responsibility that lies on each one of us. You can't just outsource it to, to other people. Paul says, hey, I'm telling you to deal with this and agree in the Lord, and I'm sending some other people to come alongside and help you do that. There's a great weight of responsibility that lies on every member of the church to live as a unified community. As you approach this, this fifth year, have you taken up that kind of responsibility in the church? If you've been around for a while, if you're new and you're just exploring, we're so glad you're here. And I know this team wants to introduce you to Jesus, show you what it means to believe in him and follow him. But if you are a follower of Jesus and you've been around for a while, but maybe you've been avoiding taking on responsibility. You're always kind of shifting the responsibility onto everyone else. Maybe this is a good time. Maybe this is a good year for you to say, you know what? I'm in. I'm going to take responsibility to practice unity. I'm going to take the first step. I'm going to show love to others. I'm going to purpose in my heart to endure even when it's hard and when it's messy and church life is not what I thought it was, or, you know, now that you're at the five-year mark, there's going to be a temptation for nostalgia. Do you guys know about it? You're old enough to where you're like, oh, remember year two? I wish it could be like year two. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I used to hear this all the time. Like, oh, especially when we moved venues as a church, I'm, you know, church planning, you move venues. Like, I remember the old days when everything was perfect. I'm like, no. No, you don't get to say that. I don't know who said this, but nostalgia is the combination of a bad memory and a great imagination. I don't know who said that, but it's absolutely true. I'm like, are you kidding me? That was a nightmare. Of like, I reflect back and I'm like, oh man, there was all this drama. There's, all, there's no like one pristine age of the church. Oh, King's Cross Church year three was peak. Like, stop it. No. There's always going to be things that the Holy Spirit is doing and people are getting saved and there's always going to be challenges and difficulties. That's called the life of the church. Read the New Testament. The important thing is that you get involved and you move forward and you commit. Your faithfulness to the church should not be dependent on the lack of faithfulness to others, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to you. I never have a good excuse to not be faithful to the church just because others have failed. Jesus never asks you to love the church based on how well they love you back. Jesus says, as I have loved you, you must love. He's always appealing back to himself. And that's, that's the last thing I want to say. Jesus is our mediator. That's the fifth thing you need to know about practicing unity. Is that Jesus is our mediator. He is the one that makes all of this possible. Now, where do I get that from? Notice the beautiful image that he ends this very brief passage with. And it's how he lands his call to unity. 
He says, hey, I implore all of you to agree in the Lord. And then he ends with this short phrase, whose names are in the book of life. It's a reference to your salvation. It is a reference to your eternal hope, home, and security. That's how he lands his appeal. He's like, hey, everyone, as you're dealing with your drama, you need to remember that as you do, and even when it's hard, and other people have to get involved, and it's messy, can you just do all this remembering that your names are written in the book of life? Can you just pause and remember how significant that is? To a people who have placed, especially in the first century, a very high value on knowing their names were kept as a registry in Rome, or in our modern culture where, you know, I'm on this list and whose list am I on? And, you know, we care about all that. Paul says it's a much bigger list, a much more important list. It's the book of life. Who has believed in Jesus and has the hope of everlasting life? That's the book he's talking about. It's because of Jesus that we get on that list. And therefore, it's because of Jesus that we can live like it. Unity allows us to focus on the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ. So as you're dealing with difficulty, as you're dealing with difficult people, Remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I quote John Newton again because I do believe it's beautiful. When he's writing about how to deal with your opponent, he closes with this to reflect on yourself. He says, the Lord bears with you likewise. You ever wondered that you might be a difficult person to be dealt with? Just think about that. And expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness that you need yourself. And in a little while, you will meet in heaven. And that person will be dearer to you now than the nearest friend you have upon earth. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. That person that you struggle with in King's Cross Church is like, oh, here they come. Imagine this. Someday that person that just drives you nuts in this church, don't say their name out loud, or at the picnic afterwards, <laughs> that person that drives you nuts, one day in glory, you will be closer together then than the dearest friend on earth you have now because of Jesus because you will be in glory and this is possible because Jesus is our mediator between man and God and one another and this is our greatest need and it's what this church is built on Jesus is the mediator because the gospel is this we by nature have been separated from God because of our sin. We're doomed to eternal separation from him because of our sin. What does God do? Jesus, the son of God, comes and he lives a sinless life on our behalf. He goes to a cross 
to stand in our place, on our behalf, to pay for all of our sin, absolutely everything, to forgive us and to bring us to God. It's why Paul says to his young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And it is by believing in him that you are brought to God and brought to one another. And it is only then that you become willing to acknowledge conflict and drama and even forgive one another because you have been forgiven. The cross is the evidence of how far God is willing to go for you. So I know it may be hard to make the first move, but think about the gospel. That's exactly what God did for us. He made the first move to save us. Your practical unity, King's Cross, is based on the purchased unity of Jesus Christ. And as we prepare to take communion on this fifth anniversary, what you're doing is you're inviting the mediator in. If you're not yet a Christian, Invite Jesus to be your mediator between you and God. Without him, you are lost forever. But with him, you have the hope of eternal glory. Believe on him as your mediator. And for all your conflict and the difficulties and the hardships with people and situations, invite in the mediator. Just say, Jesus, you're the mediator. I need you. Invite him in. And when we do, we will display the unity that Jesus died and rose to bring. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you made the first move, the only move that could save us by sending Jesus to live, die, and rise for us that we might be brought near to you and near to one another. I pray for King's Cross Church in this year as they grow and as they continue to move forward, that they would neither be surprised nor controlled by the difficulties of church community life, that they would not be derailed by it, that they would not allow their love to grow cold with every obstacle they face, but rather that it would be their opportunity to cling more closely to Jesus. That it would be their opportunity to remember again the gospel. Remember again their great and glorious hope that our names have been written in your book of life. And as a result, God, I pray that you'd bring great healing. Maybe you might even by your spirit prompt men and women in this community to take the first step, whether it's a text message or reaching out to someone they've wronged or someone who's wronged them. If there are people even here this morning who need to hear that, need to be compelled by your spirit, may they be open to that. And as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, God, I pray that with childlike faith, we would just invite you in and that you would change us even today. Jesus' name.